0: The scripture reading for tonight comes from the book of John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born anew, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born anew. The wind blows where it wills, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know whence it comes or whither it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can this be? For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God sent the Son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. The word of the Lord.
1: come up here and you want to communicate something about God it's kind of part of the job but mostly all you have is words and they're never really very adequate maybe you can just sort of point in the right direction but pointing is about it I mean anything I say up here fails God isn't really light or father or a mother or even mercy, love and wisdom because these are just words and what they signify is never even close to the full reality of God. Really all we have is a bunch of metaphors and sometimes the metaphors work great and sometimes those metaphors just lie there all flat and limp and old and a little bit stupid meaning nothing to you. Not that you should just throw them away, but, but maybe they need to be infused with a little bit of an imaginative something. Occasionally, I've had trouble with the journey metaphor, though it's a very popular metaphor and very widely used, probably one of the best metaphors in the world, but still sometimes me for me it's sort of flat. It might be because back when I was in an Evangelical Christian college, people were always talking about your Christian walk. And they'd ask you, how's your Christian walk? And I just wanted to say, I don't know, I'm not sure I have a Christian walk. I, I just have a regular walk. Is a Christian walk a little jaunty or something? I just put one foot in front of the other Some people say I walk a little slow, but I think it's just because I have short legs. When a churchy person now asks me, where is your journey leading you these days? I just think of driving back and forth to the city on Highway 10, which I kind of hate. I think of the gravel road that leads to our farm. My journey, it's a little bit boring and aggravating and there are a lot of potholes. Sometimes I guess that the whole road, journey, walk metaphor doesn't really open up for me these different ways of seeing. For me, I just get stuck thinking of my commute. Obviously, this speaks to a lack of imagination in myself. I mean, there's so many imaginative possibilities for the whole journey motif. There's safaris and Homeric odysseys, there's the magic school bus, and Star Trek, and Jack Kerouac on the road, there's wagon trains, and acid trips. Maybe I just need some different images for this whole Christian road metaphor thing. What's the Christian journey like? This text from John actually offers the most amazing glimpse at this for me. It infuses the whole journey metaphor with crazy new life. Reading this story, it seems to me that Nicodemus might be looking for something like a little imaginative possibility. It seems like he might have been sort of tired of the old Pharisee metaphors. He probably knew the scriptures backward and forward. He probably knew all the words about God, all the metaphors about God that had ever been written. And whatever the godly road was, I'm sure he followed it. Pharisees were good people. They followed the rules. But Nicodemus is compelled somehow, it seems, to seek out this sort of new guy in town, Jesus, who actually seems a little out there. He would made this incredibly disruptive scene at the temple and it was Passover, which was a super high, very important holy day and there were pilgrims everywhere trying to attend to their religious journey. And Jesus just threw things in everybody's path, turning over the tables, setting the sacrificial birds free, wrecking things up really, creating some chaos. It was like direct action, man, a little anarchic. But Nicodemus, the old preserver of the godly way, is apparently intrigued about what Jesus seems to be up to. So he seeks Jesus out and he says, Look, I've been I've been thinking about you, I've been making some observations, I heard about that whole dove thing at your baptism and and how you turned water into wine and you made all those really bold moves at the temple. And I'm beginning to deduce that you might be some kind of teacher of God. And you'd think that Jesus would just say, you're right, I am. But no, instead he like whips the rug out from under Nicodemus and sends him flying. He says, look, man, you're going down the wrong road. It's not like math. One plus one doesn't exactly equal two in this whole God thing. You can't, like, make observations about me and then deduce who I am. You don't, like, figure out. You don't calculate this whole God thing. The only way you can see the kingdom of God, Jesus says, really will see me. And then he says this thing that is so totally wild he says the only way you can see is to be born again that's like whoa i don't know it's like taking everything out of the realm of rational discourse that's like the kind of thing that wizards in fairy tales say to princes who are looking for golden gooses or magic monkeys you must be born again It's like a riddle. It's mysterious. It's wild, and it's weird. And I hope that you can hear it. Because I know this whole born-again thing is potentially sort of shrunk and stuck and dried out. I think I got a different perspective reading this text in the last two decades. Because birth isn't exactly an abstract thing for me anymore. And once you've actually given birth, you have sort of a heightened awareness of the amazing and colorful and super messy details of what it takes to get something born. And I feel just so incredulous that this incredible extraordinary metaphor to be born again could ever get so shrunk and dried out that it becomes equated with a one-time clean little rational decision that somebody makes or doesn't make in altar calls or church camps or wherever. I mean, come on, we're talking about birthing and being born, and that just seems so unlike talking about that time when you were six and you raised your hand in Sunday school or came down the aisle at a Billy Graham rally. Jesus says you have to be born again. That seems so different than saying that you have to make a decision. I'm not saying that there's no place for decision. I'm just saying that this metaphor doesn't seem like the place. Maybe my awareness because I'm a woman who's given birth is a little bit more on the side of the birther. But how did we ever take this metaphor and make it all about something that the one being born does? I mean, who does the most work to get something born? I'm telling you, not the bir When Jesus says, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God, it seems to me he's saying, Nicodemus, you think you figured something out, but really you you have no tools, no rational or irrational, mathematic or artistic means that are adequate for understanding, for seeing God. For humanity as it is, there's no possibility of seeing or entering the kingdom unless you're born again. Which could almost seem like the equivalent of saying, look, it's impossible. Buddy, forget it. Go home. Except that Jesus says, don't marvel so. Look, it can happen. It does happen. But it's not like something you do or something you even rationally comprehend. It's like the wind. You don't know where it comes from. You can't see it. You surely don't cause it or make it. You don't set it in motion. You can't even see where it goes. But the wind blows. And the wind has a kind of important reputation in the Bible. In Greek and in Hebrew, you use the same word for the wind that you do for breath and spirit. So it's the wind that blew over the primordial chaos at the moment of creation. And it's the breath that God blew into the nostrils of Adam to give him life. And it's the spirit that blows through the valley in Ezekiel, piled high with bones and bones and dry bones. And the bones rattle when the spirit blows and grow flesh and stand up. So this being born again may not seem like the most likely scenario, but Jesus says believe me, trust me, the wind blows and the impossible happens, something comes out of nothing, bones grow flesh and start marching around and humanity is reborn. John, the writer of this gospel, says it all so clearly a few paragraphs before our story. He writes, Children of God are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but they are born of God. Born of God. It seems to me that the profundity of the whole born-again metaphor lies exactly here. You are being birthed by God. The wind is blowing and not only blowing but howling and huffing and puffing like a woman doing lamas. God is birthing us. If you look, you can find a lot of interesting sort of birth images in the Bible. Like God's womb. God's womb is imagined to be the place where life originated. It was God's womb that birthed the whole world in the first place. There's a Hebrew word used for God's compassion, mercy, love that can also mean womb. Maybe that's the womb that birthed us. What a nice womb to be born from, compassion, mercy, love. Isaiah talks about the whole complicated history of God with God's people of faith and no faith and brokenness and anger and forgiveness, as if the whole time God is laboring with God's children, Israel, impatient to deliver them, impatient for them to be born. And for even more birth imagery. There's a Hebrew word for pain in childbearing. It's, om- it's most often translated as grieve. And it's what's God doing as Adam and, Lee- Adam and Eve leave the Garden of Eden. God's grieving, childbearing, feeling the labor pains for these children. I mean, think about it. If God's labor pains were starting way back then, I don't think that God's having a picnic birthing humanity. I mean, imagining, imagine, laboring 10,000 years to give birth to your children. It seems like the popular imagination still sometimes persists in thinking of God as, I don't know, some sort of noble, stoic, deity, king, guy in the sky some removed sort of cosmic measurer of righteousness, this impassive patriarch who demands specific sort of actions before he'll allow people any sort of intimacy, before he'll allow people to be close to him. But scripture really paints an entirely different picture, like god us. That's pretty intimate from the get-go. The story about being born again has often been reduced to this requirement that we must fulfill lest we be eternally damned. That's distorted. I think it's ridiculous. I think in this story Jesus is trying to say it's part of God's labor for us, with us, that God became human and lived and died on the cross, and through this process that involves God's suffering, God's humiliation and pain, humanity is being born. And Jesus invites us to believe in this, in this labor process. Believe that God is birthing us. God is giving birth to you. Sometimes the labor is shorter, sometimes the labor is longer. But our image of God would be richer if people quit talking about God. Like God was some stoic, impassive, old deity, all concerned with his place at the top of some hierarchy, all concerned that his subjects bow down and kneel before him, and instead imagined a pregnant woman, waddling and crying, yelling from time to time with the pains of labor, sometimes angry, sometimes tortured, giving birth to her children. What's it like for the one being born? I mean, what's it like for us? What is salvation even like? What's it like to be born? It's not like being in the womb. In the womb, it's all dark and soft and cushy, and you're really well insulated, and you're, you're really well protected from the outside world. In some ways, you're not that vulnerable. Your every need is immediately filled. You don't even have to move your mouth to get food. Every desire is immediately gratified. There's no pain. And then you're born. Things change. You're immediately prodded, and sharp stuff touches you, and you can feel cold, and suddenly it's possible that you won't get fed the moment you want it, and you cry for the first time. Miles, my son, when he was about four, and I was was pregnant with Olivia, my daughter, Miles said to me, I wish I was still in your tummy, because then no one would ever get mad at me. And besides feeling shocked that he would articulate it like that and besides feeling like some evil ogress who got mad at her children, besides feeling like I'd been stabbed with a thousand swords, I felt like I wished so much I could recreate the womb for him. I wished I could insulate him from every possibility of pain. Like, oh, Miles, I will never get mad at you again. I promise. And neither will anyone else if I can help it. And I will remove all toxins from your environment and dismantle all nuclear warheads and create world peace and stop global warming. There will be no car wrecks and no broken hearts. But actually, I couldn't. And in some ways, most ways, I wouldn't ever even wish him back in my womb. I like talking to him too much. I like relating to him as more than a fetus that's bumping around inside of me. I think sometimes that I imagine salvation as somehow being removed from the possibility of pain and suffering, but that is so not what it's like to be born. It's like as soon as we start that trip down the birth canal, we become vulnerable to all sorts of wonderful and frightening and beautiful and horrible and sad and amazing things. So I feel like this born again thing gives us an amazing glimpse at what the Christian journey, the road of salvation, the Christian walk might be like, like being born. Not like doing all the right things or walking jauntily. Not like walking a straight line or a tightrope, carefully watching your own feet, being attentive to your own road, a journey that requires a map, and a journey that requires your ability to follow it. I think that maybe we're being born again. Maybe the spirit really does move and blow, and I think it's happening all around us all the time. God's saving the world. Maybe there's groaning and blood and pain in the birthing process. And it doesn't feel like being in the womb. Maybe it's not as safe. But isn't it nice to feel the wind blow on your skin? And maybe it's not always a gentle, warm breeze. But thank God for breath, and life, and for enduring labor. And now you're invited to come and partake of this reminder of how God labors for us. With God's body and blood.